Right now, Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last, or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. We've got wall-to-wall Premier League football with games being played nearly every day. And with the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals, and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch all the games live, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Hello and welcome to Glad Tidings, the Everton Football Club podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Greg O'Keefe and I'm, as ever, I'm joined by my colleague Paddy Boyland to discuss the latest news in the Blues every single week. This week, we're looking back on a dismal defeat at Wolves, after which Carlo Ancelotti described his players' performances as, several times, unacceptable. We'll look back at that game today and we'll be going through the squad to assess which players are expected to stay and which players we possibly expect to leave in the summer. Well, first, Pad, let me ask you about an article you wrote on The Athletic this morning about a player Ancelotti's already added to his Everton squad for next season, and that's Niels Nkunku. Tell us a bit more about his background and you know the piece you've done today, how Everton pipped some other you know big big players in the European football to get his signature. Yeah, so I think Nkunku is quite an interesting prospect. Obviously, not only is he Everton's first signing of the summer, but he's also somebody that they had to battle hard to sign in the first place. When I was putting the piece together, it quickly became apparent that there was not a lot of information already out there. And I guess that's where we earn our corners journalists. He he hadn't made a first team appearance for Marseille, spent the majority of his time with Marseille B and only featured, I think, a handful of times on the bench for uh, the first team. So (laughs) we earn our corn by speaking to people close to the player, speaking to people that have watched him time and time again for Marseille B. And what developed quite quickly was a picture of somebody who was talented but just hadn't really had much of an opportunity at, at Marseille. And and that's the story in a nutshell for me. It seems as though he just wasn't assured, really. He wasn't given the assurances, I should put it, that he would have a clear pathway to the first team, that he would, that he was kind of behind Jordan Amavi, the ex-Aston Villa defender, and a few others in the pecking order. And that... Everton came to the table, a host of other European sides did. And where Everton were able to kind of win this battle was in showing Nkunku and his representatives that they had the best route to the first team, if that makes sense. So Luca Dean obviously is the first choice left back. Leighton Baines' future is still up in the air. Although if you read quotes from Marcel Brands and Carlo Ancelotti about this signing, they kind of make it quite clear that Nkunku would be third choice behind those two. But Ancelotti made a a personal call to Nkunku and his representatives. He outlined the vision for the player. I think there was was something about how um, if Nkunku worked hard, he would go on to become a top, he could go on to become a top uh, fullback. And they were kind of convinced of his abilities, which which obviously went down well with um, everybody else on the call. And I think more than anything as well, when you've got somebody like Carlo Ancelotti making personal phone calls as a 19-year-old that's never played a professional game, when, you ha- when you're that kind of person and you've, you, you've got somebody like Ancelotti on the other end of the phone, I think that holds a fair amount of weight. So in the end, Everton obviously got the deal over the line. He signed for, it's, it's three years with, with the option for a further year 
if um, if all parties kind of in, are in agreement. And Everton feel as though they've got somebody that, yes, may well have to play games at under-23 level. And yes, will have to spend some time training with the first team before he's ready. But they believe they've got kind of somebody with untapped potential here. Somebody who is, I think to quote somebody in my piece, close to being the perfect modern fullback in terms of attributes. And I don't mean he's the finished product, but he's, he's close to having all those attributes that you need. He's... He's able to kind of patrol the whole flank for 90 minutes, pacey, um, powerful, good crosser of the ball. We're told he's good technically and can play f- further forward on, on, on the wing if needs be. And I think that's why he was so, so appealing to Everton. They, they, they obviously picked him up on a free transfer and his wages won't be sky high. So uh, this is actually the kind of deal I like to see. And I think I mentioned this before, but I think this is the, the, the kind of deal I like to see Everton making. It, it shows that not only are they keeping up to date with exactly what's hop- happening around the continent in terms of the first team and the players they need to bring in there, but it also shows that they're looking lower down the ranks at how they can buy the best young talent from around the continent and beyond. Um, so hopefully it kind of goes on to have uh, a long and glittering a storied career at Everton and, and, and kind of lives up to some of the excellent left-backs we've had. We, we we haven't always had great players in other positions, but I think in the Premier League era, there have been a lot of decent Everton left-backs. see Luca Dean and Leighton Baines, the last two. So there's a succession plan here. There's there's Dean, there's Baines, there's Nkunku, hopefully some way down the line takes over from those two. And um, yeah, we wish him well. Hope he obviously hope he goes on to become a a top player for Everton in in, in the years to come. But um, yeah, it's kind of an interesting piece to write. And if you've not checked it out already, do do go on the site and have a look because, uh, like I say, there's not actually that much inf- information out there about this lad. And he was wanted by some top clubs, so he's quite clearly got something about him. If if you put it that way. Yeah, indeed. And you can read that piece along the rest of our Everton content for free uh, right now at the Athletic. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Everton pod to sign up for a 30-day free trial. You can just, you know, read all the stuff from Paddy and I. Most days, uh, pre- and post-game uh, Q&As and uh, make your mind if you think you want to continue and, and have a full subscription, but you can get a 30-day free trial. Like I say, enjoy all that content, plus a network of ad-free podcasts without paying a penny. So just need to go to theathletic.com forward slash Everton pod. Okay, let's discuss the game down at Molyneux. It really wasn't wasn't pretty at all. Uh, probably one of the, the worst performances I've seen all season, from my point of view. You know, sometimes you, it's interesting to get you know other perspectives. And uh, you know, our colleague Tim Spears, who writes about Wolves for the Athletic, I read his piece, and um, whilst not being gratuitous by any means, he, he was <laughs> you could tell unimpressed by Everton. I think he described us as rolling over like a puppy and allowing our tummy to be tickled and um, I'd say that was probably more charitable than I was inclined to be uh, about Everton's display obviously a lot, a lot more serious from our point of view because you know um, the irony of, of Nuno Spirito Santo getting frustrated in that second half because his team didn't absolutely pulverise Everton in a way they probably should have done given how poor Everton were Pads where do we start was are you sort of thinking along the same lines as me that was one of the worst you've seen them play this season? Yeah, I, I think so. And what you've just said there about Nuno, Espirito Santo, kind of crystallises that. The fact that Wolves were disappointed to only win 3-0 tells us an awful lot about 
the way the 90 minutes played out. And it, it, it's kind of humbling in a way because not so long ago, probably, I mean, towards the end of David Moyes' tenure and the start of Roberto Martinez's time at the club, Everton were best of the rest. And I don't think anybody was particularly happy or comfortable with that status. Certainly nobody kind of outside of the club and the supporters, they, they, they certainly weren't. Journalists like ourselves, we didn't want Everton to just be best of the rest. But they, they were, they were they were the ones outside of the traditional or the established top six that were always looking to to close the gap, to usurp those sides immediately above them. And sometimes under David Moyes, they did. Sometimes they didn't, sometimes they did. Wolves are one of those sides that in Mashiri's time at the club now in the last three, four, five years, they've kind of managed to become the, the latest version of Everton in a sense. And they're now the, the top challengers along with Leicester to um, those kind of those, those six teams that we all, we all know um, pretty well now. Um, and to see Everton getting pulled apart in that second half in particular by a side that even three, four years ago, they were comfortably ahead of in the footballing pyramid. Um, it did bring everything kind of home, home to roost for me. It, it just so, so far from being acceptable as a performance. Um, I can understand that there was a lot of anger, a lot of frustration out there, particularly on social media, which is not always the most temperate of places, the best of times. But um, there's a lot of anger out there. And sometimes I, I think it kind of gets a bit overblown, but here probably not because of the, the, the extent of the, the poor performance. And we keep coming back to this question over specifically since lockdown kind of finished and football season resumed. We keep coming back to the question, what are we learning about this current Everton squad? I don't think we learn an awful lot about it, but what we do know now is that people effectively are starting to dig their own graves with regards to being not only kind of first team regulars, but also probably squad members at all, if we're, if we're being honest. Several of those lads that were out there um, that were heavily kind of criticised, if we're being honest, in Carlo Ancelotti parlance for the second half and the first half performances. Several of those lads now will be looking nervously over their shoulders, you would think, based on that 90 minutes and the comments from Ancelotti. And they are quite a big deal, those comments from Ancelotti as well, because he's, he is kind of the, he is the elder statesman, he is the gentlemanly figure. He doesn't normally kind of go in hard on players. So for him to say that this was unacceptable, I think tells its own story. And to see how brassed off Seamus Coleman was in that interview also helps paint that picture. And obviously people will have their own opinions on that Coleman interview. And some people I've seen have suggested that it was kind of another example of an Everton captain delivering a rallying cry. I th I think it was more than that. I I've not seen Coleman that annoyed, I don't think, in an interview before. I don't think I've seen him be quite that forthright. And he's already said, you go back a few weeks, he's already said that players are fighting for their futures at Everton now. Well, if players were fighting for the futures against Wolves, if if we've got kind of 19, 20 players fighting for their futures against Wolves, how many of them made a successful case for, for remaining at Everton Football Club or being starters, full stop? I'm kind of looking at this since, I'm kind of looking at this season in a microcosm, looking at the the five or so games since the resumption, since Project Restart got kind of back underway. And 
Michael Keane maybe is, has advanced his claims. I think he's been one of the best on display. Anthony Gordon's been good in a struggling side. But the obvious point to make about somebody like Anthony Gordon is he is now, he now looks like Everton's most creative player. He now looks like Everton's bravest player in possession. And I kind of dis- discount the front two, uh, Calvert-Lewin and Richarlison, because they're being completely starved of service. Anthony Gordon's the only one looking to take the game from midfield to the opposition. And these are far from ideal circumstances in which the blood are young a young kid. I mean, the, the obvious parallel to make is is with Curtis Jones over at Liverpool. Curtis Jones plays for the same England on the 19 side as Anthony Gordon. He doesn't always start ahead of Anthony Gordon, by the way, but he's just got such a solid foundation when he comes onto the pitch, when he plays, because he knows that everybody else around him is doing his jobs. He's playing in a com that doing their jobs, I should say. He's playing in a confident, free flowing side. If you stuck Anthony Gordon into that side. He'd look a million dollars at this moment in time. But he's kind of having to make up for the shortcomings of all those around him in midfield. And I think that that's what we've seen more than anything since the break. We've seen the disintegration, as I put it in the um, in the match piece I did from the Tottenham game, the disintegration of Everton's midfield and the extent to which heads have gone down, confidence has kind of ebbed away. And we're now at a point where people like Ancelotti are looking around and saying, this is just so far away from being good enough. And it is, let's be honest, we, c- we can't sugarcoat it. I'd love to sit here and say that I think Everton are, uh, are on the right track and everything's all hunky-dory. They've got a good manager in Ancelotti, but not everything is on the right track with that group of players. They- they've got a squad of players that I think has been inherited from four, five, six different managers now. And they just don't look fit for purpose in this current system. And I think that that's the worrying thing for me. It just feels like instead of in a window in which Everton, you wouldn't have thought are going to have loads and loads of money to spend. There just seems like an awful lot of work to do after, certainly after the last two, three games, just shining the spotlight on the glaring weaknesses in this, in this team and in this squad. I couldn't agree more. And I think if anything, it was possibly even shocked and surprised Ancelotti at the extent of, the, the problems, um, you know, football's different, isn't it? And it might be, in some cases, difficult to summon the intensity required, but I don't think that's an excuse for many quarters. And what Seamus was saying rings very true, that it's not good enough for Everton Football Club. Um, and there are, there are clubs out there like Wolves who, you know, might think they've got more to play for, but Everton supposedly had European football to play for. You know, Ancelotti says in hindsight he doubts his players believed it well again that's just not good enough it's not just a personnel reboot that might be required but it's a mentality reboot so he's got a big job on his hands I think maybe the full extent of that is dawning on him Hello I'm James Richardson host of the Totally Football Show now part of the Athletics Podcast Network. We're going to be here following all the action as the 2020 football season reaches its belated conclusion. And if you're an Athletics subscriber, you can now hear exclusive ad-free versions of our show on the Athletic app. And don't worry, if you're not a subscriber, you can still listen to us for free with the occasional word from our sponsor by searching for The Totally Football Show on Apple, Spotify and all the usual podcast places. The Totally Football Show with me, James Richardson, still totally free and now totally ad-free on The Athletic. 
let's go through the squad or some of the players in the squad anyway and just chat over he, who we might think might be around next season and, and maybe who might not um, we'll start with one who, who's almost certain to be around I guess but has undoubtedly had a really difficult period uh, well periods throughout the season Jordan Pickford um, I read an interesting piece earlier this morning from Jonathan Lewin the Guardian talking about in relation to his England uh, his England status England's number one and uh, sort of comparing it, him to that aura of infallibility that Joe Hart once had and then lost and then never recaptured and he's saying that that's not happened in his opinion with Pickford but it could happen obviously England is less our concern than Everton um, and it just seems at the moment that every game there's a little there's a there's an instant or, or two where basic errors are happening and um, it's quite alarming really Pad, do, you think, do you feel it's just a, a top goalkeeper in a slump of form bad form or do you think that we might have to reassess his his long-standing potential I think we have to assess everybody's long-standing potential when it comes to to Everton in the next phase because I I don't think there maybe there are some givens but there aren't many and um, even some of the players that I think we'll go on to talk about later that are kind of shoe-ins or should be shoe-ins if we put it that way are ones that are being kind of deprived of service or not being utilised perhaps in the right way. You can't necessarily make that case with Pickford. I don't think it's a question of him not being utilised in the right way. I just think he has. He's had ebbs and flows throughout probably every season at Everton. Um, less so in his in his first year here, where obviously he won uh, Player of the Year and undeservedly so. But certainly in the in the last two, he's been he's been up and down. I actually think he started this season really well. And you, you look back to first game of the season against Crystal Palace, two really big saves one-on-one. I think one was from Jordan Ayew, the other from Wilfred Zaha to get Everton a point at Crystal Palace. Second game, he made, makes a huge save one-on-one from Troy Deeney to make sure Everton take three points instead of one against Watford. And he kind of continued that for, for two or three games, making these big saves. Marco Silva made a deal as well that you'd seen a maturation. You'd seen kind of extra maturity added to Pickford's game. But I just think, like like I'm saying, I just think there have been periods where he's been up and there have been periods where he's down. And it's about consistency for him. This is not... The last few games, I think he was targeted by Southampton and Tottenham. Tottenham within swinging corners. That put him in a bit of... Difficulty, Southampton as well, put him in a few shaky situations that he didn't really come out of particularly strongly. And against Wolves, he obviously very nearly let let in a, a um, kind of a real disaster of a goal, if we want to put it that way. And I think I've I've read that Jonathan Liu piece as well, and it's it's a good piece. And I agree that Jordan Pickford's glass ceiling is higher than just about any other England goalkeeper at this moment in time. I certainly think it's higher than Pope's at Burnley, even though Pope is a, a much more consistent goalkeeper. But what what's quite interesting for me is you look at the image of that independent art. Oh, it's not independent, sorry, the Guardian article by Jonathan Liu. And um, it's, it's a Pickford kind of pulling his tongue after he's just, saved himself from being the headline on the back pages the next day. I just think that rubs fans up the wrong way. 
And certainly as I was scrolling through Twitter during that game against Wolves, I was seeing loads of people, not just Everton fans, talking about that side of Pickford's game. First of all, the error and how he responds to the error. And I think that's a slight concern insofar as um, he, he becomes the focus. And I don't think you want your goalkeeper to become the focus of attention because very quickly then you get into situations where they're targeted by opposition players. They become seen as potential weak links, even if even if that's not necessarily true. You get these columns like the Jonathan Liu one in the, um, in the Guardian. And what I actually think Jordan Pickford needs is a period where he just focus, focuses on his own game where he's kind of goes under the radar, where he delivers six, seven out of tens. He doesn't need to be 10 one week and four the next. I'd actually much rather he was just seven or eight every single week. And I think that's where he, I think that that's where his biggest room for growth is. I think he, he needs to be the, the one that effectively creates that solid foundation. And it's not just him, but Everton don't have a solid foundation at this moment in time. They just look, if you go right through the core of the side, there just appear to be weaknesses and fragilities that are being exploited. So in answer to your question, I think all of the players need to kind of need to be assessed. Um, this is now Ancelotti and Brands looking at the whole squad in its entirety and deciding what bits are, are fit for purpose, what bits aren't, what bits might be fit for purpose in the years to come. And Jordan Pickford has so far to my knowledge, had loads of positive feedback from Carlo Ancelotti. Certainly in public, Ancelotti's always praised Pickford and spoken positively about his um about his quality and, and stuff like that. But um he's not going to be immune if he if he continues to put, perform maybe to the extent he did against Wolves. So um maybe maybe a little bit of a warning sign, um, even if I think it's unlikely at this stage that Everton would actively look to cash in on somebody like Pickford. Mm. Plenty of food for thought though. Um, it's probably, as, as you've hinted really, the, the same sort of ambiguity over over most, well, several of, of that first team. Um, don't think anyone's absolutely guaranteed to, to not be here, but let's talk about one who, you know, again, in that key area, um, just just didn't have a good game at all on, on Sunday. And it has to be said, you know, it, it could be taken as an obvious, but let it bear repeating, no, nobody did really. I think Gordon had some moments. But Gilfie Sigurdsson, you know, again, d- didn't have a good game at all. From my point of view, when I was doing the report for the game, I'm looking at the midfield. Obviously, it's, it's natural that you have to look at the midfield when you, you know, they tried something new, they, they freshened it up. I totally agree with you, it's, really difficult for Gordon at the moment and the fact that he's having good moments suggests like you say imagine what you're doing a settled confident team but um, you know he was he was put into a different role again on Sunday in sort of a central role and um, it just didn't work in the midfield at all and Gilfie Sigurdsson as the senior member of that that central unit the you know, experienced Iceland international uh, and someone who whilst you know yes he probably sees himself as number 10 does play in central midfield for Iceland. Uh, just didn't didn't do it again. Um, all too often was taking the ball when he was facing his own goal and rather than turn and try and play through the lines, he was just playing safe passes backwards and sideways and it was incredibly, incredibly frustrating. And I'm not sure it sets a good example for Tom Davis beside him or 
or, or any of the other players to see someone like Sigurdsson, who has worn the captain's armband at times, perform like like that, really. Um, what did you make of of the midfield and Gilfie's part in it? Well, it, it feels like we, we make the same points just about every week, or we could make the same points just about every week when it comes to the Everton midfield. I think it's been, certainly since Idrissa Gay left, it's been the major weakness if you look at the compartments of the pitch at Everton, it's been the major weakness. They've really missed Garner's ability to make those tackles, make those interceptions, help Everton get up the pitch. And obviously they they have been unlucky with injuries, Gabamin and, and Andre Gomez. My main issue is that I, I I look at this I look at this team and I look at the midfield in particular and I just think too many of that midfield don't look comfortable in the roles that they're being asked to play. It's it's a 4-4-2. And is Sigurdsson best as one of two central midfielders in a 4-4-2? I'd, I'd argue not. Well, he probably sees himself as a 10, doesn't he? I think he does. I think if the ideal system for Gilfie Sigurdsson would be something where he plays as an 8 or a 10 as the furthest forward of Everton's three central midfielders. And he's got license to go and take aim at goal and try and create chances. Now, I actually think even though he scored a lot of goals last season, he came up with some assists, I actually think there were issues positionally anyway when Silva was playing that 4-2-3-1. And there was already a debate to be had as to whether Everton should effectively sacrifice some other elements to include Sigurdsson. But now you've got a, a system that suits him even less and that effectively necessitates that you've got two very sound and solid central midfielders, particularly defensively. And I would argue at the moment that Everton maybe don't have one out of the two that, that can do that job. They, they really lack that Idrissa Gay, Jean-Philippe Gabamin type that can can do the dirty side of the game and also help them get up the pitch. So I've just, as you were saying this, I've just made a note of the players that are either, in my opinion, less suited to 4-4-2 than other systems or were playing out of position at the weekend in the admittedly different 3-5-2. So in defence, you had Luca Dean and Seamus Coleman playing effectively as second and third centre-backs. Luca Dean's best position is left-back. Seamus Coleman's best position is right-back. Maybe they can both fill in there, but it still feels a bit square pegs and round holes to me. Sigurdsson, we've already spoken about, is probably a 10 or an 8 in a in a 4-3-3 or a 4-2-3-1. Gomez, is he, is he best suited to a 4-4-2? Not sure again. Um, I think lots has been written about how he's been, certainly after Tottenham, he'd been the, the midfielder that was most dribbled around, the player that was most dribbled around in the Premier League since the restart. Alex Awobi. Um, what, what can we say about him? Well, let's be honest, he's probably not a wide midfielder anyway. Um, he's another one that you look at and think he's he's been bought to play in a 4-2-3-1 or a 4-3-3. Out on the right doesn't make use of his strengths. Being out on the left and allowing him to cut in is maybe better, but I think he himself would be better in a different system. Theo Walcott, is he a wide midfielder? No, he's probably a winger playing slightly higher up the pitch. And I just think you've got these dilemmas all over the pitch with Everton at this moment in time. And it's, that's not a slight on Carlo Ancelotti. I think what it shows is, and maybe Wolves are the best example here, what it shows is you need consistency. You need a manager to implement a style over three, four, five windows to retain his job, 
build the team on and off the pitch, and then you sign players for that specific system, I should say. So Connor Cody, he works in a in in, in a flat back three. He just he looks good there. Doherty, for example, at, at, um, at Wolves, he's a wing back. He's a perfect wing back, and I think he's better as a wing back than he would be a conventional right back. All over the pitch, Wolves got these players that dovetail really well. Yotta plays well off uh, Raul Jimenez, even though obviously Yotta didn't play all of the game the other day. And Everton now have had, since David Moyes left, they've had managers predominantly playing 4-2-3-1. They've had Sam Allardyce, who's vastly different to all of them, recruiting his own players. Silver recruiting his own players. And it's just this mismatch of everything, but also at the same time, nothing, if that makes sense. They, they they don't really I, I I don't really understand what system will get them get the most out of this squad because four four two leaves them light in central midfield and they don't seem to have the players to compensate for that. Three five two might work um with a bit of recruitment. Four four two could work with a bit of recruitment as well, but they just don't seem set up. And maybe we we can talk about individual players and we can assess whether their contribution is being good enough. But I think more than anything for me, the main issue is that collectively, almost to a man, although not quite, they just have not been good enough and they've not looked comfortable either. So I think I think it's a big window coming up for um for Ancelotti and Brands. I really, really do. And while you might look at this and think ideally you'd want to see two or three come in and a host going out, I think what we're actually gonna realise is this is gonna take an awful lot of time to get right because it's it's effectively a revamp of the squad that is needed. They need to kind of they need to look at this, and if they are playing four four two, they need to find players four 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 two and um, recruit on that basis. And it just feels like we're still paying the price almost for failed regimes, failed signings, expensive, costly signings, and and everything else. It just yeah it seems like a bit of a mess. I can't say as ever, mate, that I disagree with much of that. It does feel like a mess at the moment. Just just some closing thoughts on one player whose future probably is really on a knife edge and uh, and that's Gibril Sudebe, obviously on loan, his loan will finish uh, in just under a fortnight uh, when the season ends. And would you, what would your money be on? Would you think they'll try and get another loan from Monaco or maybe look for a different right-back option or, or maybe really look at John Joe Kenny coming back to the club and pushing Seamus Coleman it's it could go either way at the moment couldn't it yeah it's, it's a pretty fluid situation and anybody that reads the site will know that we've been reporting for quite a while that those decisions will take place at the end of the season that certainly with John Joe but also with Sadibi there are question marks there what are Everton going to do and John Joe's future will be resolved there. And I think Sadibi's future is linked to that. They don't need both of them unless they get rid of Coleman. But I think the question you've got to ask if you're Everton, the question you've got to look at here is who provides most value long-term? John Joe is already an Everton player and you can either sell him on for what I would imagine to be a, a pretty healthy fee or you could bring him back at no extra cost really to, to the club. Whereas with Sadibi, you're either going to have to... Pay his buyout, which obviously that has expired as it happens. I think that was about 12 point something million. Um, or you look to get another loan deal for him. 
the signing of Sadibi really was, I think it was kind of a, a sticking plaster to, to a, to a wound that was kind of a lot larger insofar as they, they had Seamus, but they needed somebody else after they let John Joe go out. It wasn't guaranteed to be a success by any means. And yes, we have seen some positive things from him. He's a good crosser of the ball. He's got four assists and he's up there with Luca Dean as being one of Everton's most creative players. The question I would ask is he's been fit now for a couple of weeks and he hasn't really had that many opportunities. He's not at the moment seemingly considered to be a safer pair of hands than Seamus Coleman, who we all acknowledge is now getting on in his career a bit. So is he the answer? Is he the long-term answer for a side looking to get into the top four or top six? Well, I'll leave it open to everybody else, but I'm, I'm not convinced by any stretch. So what Everton will do, and what I would do if I were in Everton situation, maybe two different things. I just think that debate will be had. Well, I know those debates will will be had at the end of the season when everything's done and dusted, when they can make a decision, they can sit down and effectively assess the merits of John Joe, of Seamus, of Sadibi, and look to take it from there. I suppose the, the, the only decisions being made is that Everton haven't offered to buy out the um, Zadibi's contract, they haven't offered to pay the, the the kind of the figure, the pre-agreed figure of 12 million that um, had been part of the, the loan deal. So that tells you something that they're not overly convinced, but it doesn't tell you whether they might, for example, want another loan deal. I don't know. What 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 would you do? Do, you, do you, I assume you don't think he's the answer? I don't. Actually, I think it's probably been a useful loan in so much that it's given them time to assess their options and I suppose a push, given the market and the way it's going to be in the summer, um, I could understand maybe them saying let's let's make do with Coleman and, and Sadibi again for next season, potentially. But eventually they're going to have to address right back and, and getting the proper successor to Sims Coleman. I don't think it's Sadibi. Um, I'd like it to be John Joe Kenny, but. I don't get the feeling when I listen, if I'm honest, when I listen to Carlo Ancelotti speak about him, that he is fully convinced. He doesn't, uh, he, he certainly doesn't enthuse over him in the way he, he, he does other players. Um, so I wonder if that's possibly not going to happen for John Joe. Of course, we'll see. Um, but in the, I know one thing in the long term, that they're going to have to get it right because it's such an important position at the moment. And, you know, you can see that from the way they're trying to, as you said, at the top of the show, plan for the next Leighton Baines or the next Luca Dean um, Everton over rely on their full backs anyway so uh, if that's going to continue they absolutely need someone who's uh, who's up to the task um, and like I say f- for what it's worth I don't think Sadibi is the answer but that's uh, about all for this episode thank you very much for listening um, don't forget you can try out The Athletic as I said earlier for 30 days just for free uh, go to theathletic.com forward slash Everton pod and we'll be back with another episode next week.